Hello, I'm Al Deschanel, and welcome to the 10th episode of Of Interest. Today is October 1st, 2020, and this week I'm going to share an interesting article about hell, an interesting resource for getting an awesome free study Bible, and then we'll be continuing our interesting study of John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress. Hey everyone, let's start with a couple of quick announcements. First, I want to remind you that I closed my Patreon account and I've moved over to PayPal. There's a new link on the Art of the Christian Ninja website. Thank you for being flexible as I keep learning how to do this. Second, this Sunday morning I'll be premiering my new sermonic devotional teaching preaching study podcast thing. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast or you can go find it on my website. And I'll also upload it to YouTube. So give it a listen and let me know what you think. Third, I posted a request on Facebook and Instagram asking for you to share some favorite learning tools, resources for staying up to date on current trends or how you study the Bible or history or whatever else that helps you grow as an educated, informed Christian. So if you don't mind, send me some of your favorites so I can share them here on the podcast. Now, as is my new tradition, I'm going to use this first part as sort of a personal section for talking about whatever crossed my mind this week. I've gotten some good feedback about it, so I figured I'd keep it up. It's nice to share other people's interesting stuff, but it's also nice to share my own personal stuff with you all, too. And this week, I want to talk about how much I wish we could eliminate the North American habit of saying, how you doing, as a greeting. It bugs me so much. It sounds like a nice thing to say, to show interest in a person's day by saying, hi, how are you doing? But most people have absolutely no desire to actually listen to an answer. So why ask the question? I think it bumps up against my absolute hatred of lying. In my family, the cardinal sin, the number one way to get in trouble in my house, is to get caught lying. I go all blue suede shoes on this point. You can knock me down, step on my face, slander my name all over the place, burn my house, steal my car, drink my, like, coffee from an old fruit jar. You can do anything you want to do, but uh-uh, honey, don't lie. And I feel like when someone asks the question, how you doing? They are like 99% of the time asking me to lie. I'll give you a recent example from yesterday. I woke up feeling all right, but by lunch, for whatever reason, I was getting sort of down. Then my phone dinged and reminded me that I had to go to the dentist to get a cavity drilled. That did not help. So I walked into the dentist's office and, you know, after calling first from the parking lot, entering 20 health-related questions, donning my mask and getting my forehead scanned, she said, how you doing? I replied, honestly, I'm a little sad right now. Her response, don't be sad. You shouldn't be sad. And then her partner chimed in and said, yeah, there's no reason to be sad. I responded, well, I think I'm allowed to be sad sometimes. And they dropped it and they pushed me into the room where the dentist was. 
They put on Netflix in front of me and then they popped on some headphones and then when the dentist came in, she asked the same question. How you doing? I pulled off one ear and I said, well, actually, I feel kind of sad today. Her response was a little better. Why? What happened that made you sad? But she was, you know, sitting there all masked up, needle in one hand, drill in the other, and I wasn't sure she wanted to hear the whole story. So I just said, you know, well, sometimes you just wake up sad, you know. I can't remember her response, but within about 30 seconds, I was back to watching Mission Impossible with a needle shoved in my gums. I left the dentist's office, I headed to the store to pick up some things for supper, and again, the girl behind the counter unthinkingly just said, Hi, how are you? And so I answered, Actually, I'm a little sad right now. And she said, Oh, do you want any bags? I wish we could find a better greeting. I'm a trained pastoral counselor. I've got a bunch of psychology and counseling classes under my belt. I was a pastor for a decade and a half, and I dealt with a lot of folks who were going through a lot under the surface. If there was one thing I learned in all those years of pastoring people, it's that everyone has a lot more going on in their head and their heart than you see on Sunday. Everyone. Even the most faith-filled, worshipful, servant-hearted, kind, generous, hard-working person you've ever met. As soon as you get them alone, and build a little trust, and and actually ask the question, how are you doing, in a way that they know you really mean it, every single one, every single one, will share some really serious stuff they're dealing with. I hold those words, how are you doing, as sacred words, godly words, deep and meaningful words, that it bugs me to no end when they're used callously or unthinkingly. Now, I don't really have a solution. I mostly just wanted to vent and present the problem. But I'm really wondering if anybody else feels like this. Maybe let me know. Send me a note. Send me a post. Uh, Let me know what you think. I'm curious if anyone else feels the way I do about the question, how are you doing? This week's interesting article is entitled Five Myths About Hell. It was written by Mark Jones on Crossway.org. It kind of captured my interest because it's something that I've been bumping into a bunch over the years. You meet a non-Christian and, you know, they don't believe in hell. You meet a person in the church and they don't really believe in hell. You meet someone who's a member of your church who actually said they agreed with the church's statement of faith, but after you ask a few more questions, you realize that they don't really believe in hell either, or they have a really messed up understanding of it. New believers struggle with it wondering how the God they love and that loves them so much could create such a terrible place. And then there's the people who go the other way, and they just want to condemn everyone to hell. You know, except themselves and the three or four bloggers they follow online. So, I think it's important for everyone to take a little time to do a little scriptural, doctrinal study of what the Bible actually says about hell. And this little Five Myths article is a good way to start that. Actually, it's part of a series. Five myths about angels and demons, five myths about marriage, five myths about depression, five myths about atheism. It's a, it's a neat little series. You should check it out on Crossway. So what are these five myths about hell? Well, the first myth, myth number one, is that Jesus wasn't concerned with hell. Now, I've heard this one a bunch. Maybe not articulated quite like that, but certainly implied that Jesus, you know, the most loving, forgiving, generous, caring person ever, couldn't possibly have talked about eternal damnation in a lake of fire. They seem incompatible. And I've watched a lot of believers get stuck on what they feel is this irresolvable paradox. But the truth is that Jesus talked more about judgment and hell than a lot of people think. And he didn't mess around. He used parables and imagery to teach about it, but it's not like he couched his language. He speaks of the great chasm between heaven and hell, the fire of hell, of whole bodies being thrown into hell, and says that when they're there, the fire is not quenched and no one dies. 
The second myth is that there's no talk of hell in the Old Testament. Some people think that hell was invented by the apostles as a way to control Christians and make them obey, but that's not true. That might not be as fully developed in the Old Testament, but it's absolutely there. The third myth is that hell is not a place of endless punishment. Some people think that, you know, God throws some people into hell, but then at the end of time, he just makes them disappear. He annihilates them, hence the term annihilationalism. But that's not true either. Throughout scripture, especially in the New Testament, hell is presented as a place of eternal torment forever and ever and ever. Technically, every human being will be alive forever. Some are granted eternal life with Jesus, while others are condemned to eternal death, tormented for all time in hell. That's a huge topic. I'm not going to get into it here, but it's really important that believers understand it. I like how Mark Jones says it. He says, in the New Testament, the same word used to describe everlasting life is also used to describe everlasting punishment. Thus, in Revelation 22:14-15, we see that the existence of the righteous in heaven is coterminous, meaning it has the same boundaries as the wicked outside heaven or hell. Myth four piggybacks on number three, that hell is merely separation from God. Sort of like earth, but without common grace and all the Christians around. But that's absolutely false too. Hell is a real place of pure evil, terrifying, terrible, void of hope. It's also a place that God continues to will into existence. It's a place where God's wrath against sinners lives forever and ever. And myth five is that hell is simply giving people what they want. I mean, how many times have you heard things like, if heaven's full of Christians, I'd rather be in hell. Or, I'd rather be in hell because that's where all the interesting people are. Or, I'd rather be in hell with you than in heaven with someone else. That is a complete and total misunderstanding of hell. It's also why believers shouldn't use the phrase, go to hell, or damn you. That's a terrible, terrible thing to say to someone. No one wants, no one chooses, no one wants to have eternal torment, misery, pain without a single moment of freedom or relief. No one. And we shouldn't want that for anyone or use those words to condemn anyone. Now, I bumbled across another article while writing this one, which has some practical applications for the doctrine of hell or, you know, reactions to the truth about hell and what that should cause us to to do. But I'm going to save that for next week. But until then, please consider giving the article Five Myths About Hell by Mark Jones on the Crossway blog, a read. In each of these podcasts, I also want to bring you an interesting resource, something that will give you the tools and inspiration you need to pursue a deeper, consistent, and more meaningful relationship with God. And speaking of Crossway, this week's interesting resource is something that I use almost every day. It's the online ESV study Bible at ESV.org, hosted by Crossway. Everyone who knows me knows I'm a huge fan of the ESV, the, the English Standard Version of the Bible, released in 2001. And I'm an even bigger fan of the ESV Study Bible. So I was super excited to learn that everyone can have access to it for free on the ESV website, ESV.org. All you have to do is get a free login and you'll be given access to not only the whole of the ESV Bible, but all kinds of study notes. And if you buy the hard copy of the ESV, it comes with an access code to even more and longer study notes. I mean, you can get the ESV Bible for only like 25 bucks right now. And you're crazy if you don't have one. Especially since you can get access to the ESV online and all the study notes 
And it has even more resources like streaming audio of the whole Bible, Bible reading plans. And okay, if you don't want a hard copy of the ESV, it's only like three bucks a month. And then you get access to 13 online study Bibles. It, it's an amazing resource. And even if you go with the free edition, it's still awesome. An excellent resource. And I highly, highly recommend it. last part of these podcasts is an interesting study on the classic book Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Remember, there's a link to this book for free on my blog, or just Google Pilgrim's Progress Desiring God. You'll go straight to it. And don't worry about being behind. We're going super slowly. We haven't even got to the end of the forward yet. We're almost there, but we're, we're not there yet. So you can follow along. We're entering a section of the forward written by John Piper that sort of takes a tangent on the biographical section of, of the author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. He goes into a bit more of a pastoral sermonic application type section. John Piper is, after all, one of the most popular pastors and preachers in the world, so it's no surprise he would end the foreword like this. He entitles it, Writing for the Afflicted Church. And it's basically five observations about the kind of fruit that all of Bunyan's suffering bore in his life. Or maybe more universally, Asking the question, how did all the pains of life and ministry and marriage and parenting and controversy and criticism and sickness actually lead to writing one of the greatest books in history? And how can that, how does it work for us? And as I said last week, like I've been through a lot in my life. I'm sure you have too. And it didn't cause me to write the greatest book of all time. It caused me to fall apart more than it inspired me to greatness. So how did God use suffering to mold Bunyan into the man he became? We're only going to cover Piper's first answer today. Bunyan's suffering confirmed in him his calling as a writer, especially for the afflicted church. Now, Bunyan didn't just write Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote 58 other books and a huge amount of sermons. And they were on all manner of, you know, current events and hot topics and theological works and poems and children's books. Now, he had no formal education, if you remember that. He didn't have, like, ancient languages and a bunch of theology. And that made the intellectual elites of his day give him some really bad reviews, despite the content of his writing, because he wasn't, you know, one of them. But you know what made his writing so powerful? What fueled his pen? What made it resonate with the hearts of so many people? It was because Bunyan wasn't writing theoretically. He was writing from experience. When he spoke of temptations, fears, the importance of prayer, desperation, anguish, worship, Satan, grace, it wasn't just a bunch of Bible verses and quotes from other people. He wrote from experience. His relationship with God, his need of Jesus, his connection to the Holy Spirit, his pastoral concern for the church, his nation, all the brothers and sisters in Christ, it came across as completely and totally authentic because it was. What a line Piper writes when he says, the fragrance of affliction was on most of what he wrote. In fact, I suspect that one of the reasons the Puritans are still being read today with so much profit is that their entire experience, unlike ours, was one of persecution and suffering. Now, I'm not so sure how unlike them we are today. Yes, of course they had it worse. No one is sticking me in jail for talking about Jesus in my podcast. But I wonder if all the insanity that we're experiencing, you know, like 
persecution of the church around the world and increasingly so in North America, the political turmoil everywhere, the fear-mongering, the manipulation from social media and biased news, the, the looming pandemic, all the environmental disasters and the coming environmental crisis, the economic upheaval we're constantly experiencing, all the death and destruction division we experience daily. I wonder, will that be the fertile soil, well, I should more accurately say, will that be the fertilizer that God will use to bring more bunions, more Puritan-type believers, more authentic Christian writers, more preachers, more believers, to spring up out of the culture to inspire people for decades to come. We've had plenty of Christian cotton candy, plenty of churches that operate like businesses and malls, but maybe now that things are a bit more difficult, we'll start to see more and more real, authentic, passionate, God-fearing, Holy Spirit-inspired believers writing and creating materials like books and movies and podcasts and YouTube and sermons and study guides that, that don't just educate. You know, they don't just... Just talk about the Bible. They speak to the very core of Christian experience because they're written from the core of Christian experience. I hope so. What a waste if we face suffering and trials and don't let it change us into deeper, more loving, more faithful, more God-oriented people. And what a waste if God does change us and we don't share it with others. So next week, we're going to move on to the second section of writing for the afflicted church. Bunyan's suffering deepened his love for his flock and gave his pastoral labor the fragrance of eternity. I hope you give it a read and join me again next week. And that's it for today. Thank you for listening, and I hope you heard something interesting. Remember, you can find all the links for all the things I talked about and a bunch of other stuff, like my free books, on the website at artofthechristianninja.com. I want this to be interactive, so send me your comments, questions, other ideas for interesting things you've found by using the Contact Me button or following me on Instagram and Facebook. If you enjoyed this podcast, sharing it with your friends and on social media really helps me out. And if you appreciate what I'm doing, maybe consider supporting me through a monthly PayPal donation. My writing and podcast only really survive because of your generous support. You can find that link on the website too. Another good way to show support is to look up and share my little side business. Just find Al's 3D Printer on Instagram and Facebook, learn what I'm up to, and see if there's anything you like. Have a great week. I'll be back on Sunday with a message. Talk to you soon.